Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. Do you know your website's SEO health score? It's essentially the percentage of pages crawled that don't have any errors. And if you see a declining health score, you need to do something about it sooner than later. And guess what? With Ahrefs Webmaster Tools, you can check your health score and get straight to improving it completely for free. Check it out at ahrefs.com AWT. You can find the link in the show notes and get more source traffic to your site today. On the show today is Sarah, also known as Sarah Nosox. Sarah is a creator, designer, and community builder. I wanted to bring her on because she's actually a very reluctant marketer, and I wanted to get the perspective of someone who doesn't really like traditional marketing. But despite that, she's the host of two podcasts, and she's created two great no-code products, and is one of MakerPad's creators in residence. So you'll hear about Sarah's own struggles and failures with marketing, how she uses Twitter for social listening and customer development, and also why she chooses to be so transparent, sharing her financials and updates on everything that she works on. Yeah. I'd like to start out, did you ever think that you would be doing web design and teaching no-code for a living? <laughs> Definitely not. No, that was not on my life plan when I started on this journey. Yeah, it, it's been very interesting. I actually always wanted to be a physician. I wanted to be a surgeon, very specifically mm. wanted to be a surgeon. But my entire life, I just always really enjoyed healthcare. And very quickly found out in college, I took one AP uh, bio course, undergrad, and it was awful, hated it. Even though I had excelled at science my entire life and kind of was thrown into a tailspin in college and didn't know what to do and ended up somewhere in between business and healthcare and have a really bizarro degree in health administration. So I went from that to then I went back to school to be a nurse after a few years and kind of always had this background in IT and was always the go-to person for troubleshooting. And I was the super user for all the programs and like, I will help explain things. And so looking back, I can see that that all ties together, right? Like I do no code tutorials. I really love education and teaching design is storytelling all of that i've done the entire time but not in this facet at all (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing yeah i mean i've been asking that question because there is kind of like a saying i've I've realized that no one you know grows up wanting to be a marketer but really like no one grows up to be a lot of or no one grows up wanting to be uh, a lot of the things that we end up becoming you know like a web designer or CEO or founder or community builder, or marketer, like there's all sorts of new career paths and titles that we give ourselves, but that's a great insight. So today you do freelance web, de- web design. We have a couple of products and podcasts, which I want to get into, but can you tell me a little bit about like how you got to where you are today and sort of, if you can step back and go back in time a little bit, sort of what are the steps that got you to where you are today? Yeah. So I touched on it a little bit. My journey is long. <laughs> But I'll I'll give the highlighted version. So like I said, I have a background in healthcare. My entire career has been in healthcare. I have a 20-year healthcare history. And I started out in kind of the business and insurance side and then didn't really enjoy that and wanted to go back and get the nursing degree. So I did that. And I was actually an oncology nurse for 10 years. And that is by far the most rewarding career I've ever had. I've learned so, so, so much by taking care of oncology patients. So oncology, also known as cancer patients. So, you know, they just give you a new perspective on life and you learn so much by talking to them. And some of the best stories that I have, you know, are from when I was just sitting with my patients, chatting with them about life. Mm. And so I really gained kind of a new perspective over that 10 years on what was important and what wasn't. And it just became clear to me that each day was really, really, really important. Like so important and we don't think about that. So as I kind of transitioned through my career, I always kept that in the back of my mind. Like if this isn't fulfilling me, I should be moving on to something that is because I could wake up tomorrow and everything could be different and I might not have that option. So why not go do it now? 
So as I transitioned out of nursing, I still am a nurse, but I'm not practicing. And I transitioned over into more of the IT side and became a product manager. The title was bizarre. It wasn't called product manager, but that's what I did. And so I, I yeah. kind of, you know, did the in between. I translated for both sides. So I translated IT stuff to the physicians and nursing staff and then translated all of the medical language to everyone else um, who was building. So developers and engineers mm. and everything. And in my last role, I was introduced to design and just absolutely fell in love with it. And we worked on web and mobile apps and I kind of said to our lead designer, hey, I actually love this, You know, could you teach me? And so he graciously took me under his wing and started showing me different things. And I just got to the point that I, I realized I wasn't fulfilled anymore. So I went back to what I always tell myself, you know, in those discussions with patients. I'm like, if I woke up tomorrow and I got a terminal diagnosis, I would really regret not just going for it. So mm. I kind of put into action a plan <laughs> of you know, how to exit this corporate life that I had built. And I had, I was, I'm very fortunate and grateful to be in the privileged position that I am, right? We, we set up a financial goal when that was met it got to the point that my mental health was not in a great place. And so I had to, you know, make an exit strategy. So I would say people like I quit my job, but I did quit with money in the bank and a plan in place. But I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be a designer, but I knew I didn't have design skills yet. And so that became a very difficult process. <laughs> I'm sure imposter syndrome was part of that equation, right? And just like trying to figure out who am I? What am I doing? Do I deserve to be here? Do I, you know, who yeah. am I to be doing this thing? Yeah, it's been huge. So I quit in December of 2019 and I was terrified to tell anybody what I was going to do. Everybody at my old job. And I, I worked, so I have a very unique story too. I worked for the same company that entire time. I changed careers, but it was still the same company. Mm. And you know, we moved, I moved across the country and had this whole new life and I took it as an opportunity to kind of reinvent myself and figure things out. And I've always been super creative and just found design so fascinating because you can literally build out a universe on <laughs> like a blank piece of paper yeah. uh, or blank screen as it were. But I, I just found that really, really fascinating and the power behind it and, you know, helping to tell stories in that fashion. But yes, I kind of had a, I didn't kind of, I did. I had a life crisis where I left and all of a sudden this identity that I had built up over 20 years wasn't there anymore. And I froze, didn't know what to do. And of course we had the pandemic that hit. So that added a whole new wrinkle mm. and everything. The only thing I did do is set up a, an LLC. And I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> I've got my contracts in place. <laughs> and all of my legal paperwork, I have no idea what I'm gonna do. So I spent a good eight months really in a bad place. I didn't have any community, I didn't have any connections, I didn't have any leads, I didn't have any idea how I was gonna make this happen. I kind of just thought, oh, I'll push really hard and it'll work out. Hmm. <laughs> it's not the way to go about it. Well, it's it's working out sort of a little bit, right? So I mean, yeah. you've pivoted and sort of iterated along the way, but you have sort of, you're making it work and it's a work in progress, right? Yeah, aren't we all? Yeah, it's definitely a work in progress. I've had a lot of success in the no code space, such an amazing community that kind of just embraced me when I really started to embrace no code as they do with lots of people. The design community as well, you know, have found some really amazing folks there. I know a lot of people are intimidated by the design community, but it's a super welcoming place. Like anything else, if you tailor your network to be the voices that you want to see and help amplify you know it's a it's a positive trusting good space yeah so i am a creator in residence for makerpad shout out to them amazing if you don't know makerpad they're they're great so i'm like step one of being a paid creative and yeah working on landing more freelance gigs for design yeah that's amazing i wanted to get uh, i wanted to touch on the makerpad creator residence because you're one of the one of how many people i mean it was only a handful correct yeah, I think there's uh, six of us now. Yeah, it was the, the first one. Although I think really Tom Osman was the first. 
<laughs> official right, right. that yeah not that title but yeah i i was just really fortunate enough to you know be in touch with them and so grateful to them for extending the opportunity and they're doing great things and we're just acquired by zapier if folks aren't aware so that's pretty awesome news for them but yeah it's been a great experience so far yeah so what does that mean to be a creator in residence and like how did you land it and like what's sort of like the path forward now yeah, so I joined MakerPad in September, and um, that was right around the time I really dove into no code. I had kind of been tiptoeing around it, but didn't know that there was this whole community. And I just communicated a bit with Ben on Twitter and saw that they posted um, for creators and had posted a couple of times. He had a few tweets going um, like, hey, if you're interested in creating content, let us know. Tom, the same thing. So I just kept reaching out. And uh, yeah, it, it was really those few connections on Twitter and a couple of DMs. And then when they officially launched the program, I applied and they reached out. And essentially what it is, is, you know, we put together tutorials and they call them tool paths, but they're like multi-step tutorials on how to build out different products that the community is requesting. So mm. I just did one recently that was a product hunt clone, but shout out to JetBoost and their wonderful clonable. Chris did a great job with that. I mean, that gets you 90% of the way there. But yeah, putting together those kind of things that just a lot of the community needs to help build their own products and kind of filling that space with those instructional videos. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I love that. I think what a cool opportunity to just be able to, to teach. And yeah. um, teaching is such a fun excuse for experimenting yourself and learning new things mm -hmm. and getting it in front of new people and sort of creating something of value that's very you know informative. How did you acquire the skills to be able to create you know tutorials like that because not i mean i would be very intimidated myself if I was, someone asked me hey can you create a you know video tutorial on this and i'm not like a you know uh video editor or i have no sort of you know av production skills so why was that a, a natural fit for you yeah uh I've always been an educator and have put together education documents my entire career. It was one of the biggest things I did as a nurse was education. So I've always been really comfortable educating folks. Mm. In terms of the videos, I decided that I wanted to learn how to make YouTube videos over the summer and just went on YouTube, right? Very meta. <laughs> right. But I went on YouTube to uh, research how to do all of that. And I have Adobe Cloud for all of my design stuff. And it comes with a ton of great tools to learn how to edit software. So I just kind of went nuts on YouTube. And also uh, our library offers free LinkedIn learning classes. So I took mm. a bunch of those. Well, it's like, you know, you can get the subscription anyway. So I just used all the free resources that I could and thought if I can't figure out how to make things work, I'm gonna figure out all of the skills and which ones I like and I'm good at and hone in on those. So I spent a lot of that eight months where I couldn't really get my mind wrapped around like being in front of people and getting over imposter syndrome of just doing all of these little things. So I like learned how to use Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop and did the, the YouTube stuff and started another podcast and, you know, just kind of like skilled up on all of these different things. And what that really allowed me to do was figure out what I liked and what I didn't. And that helped me when these opportunities presented, you know, to either push forward and say, oh yeah, I could absolutely do that for you or, you know, refer it to someone else. <laughs> Probably right. is better suited. Right. Well, I mean, the serendipity is great between, you know, sort of going out on your own and then learning these, you know, video editing skills. And then, mm -hmm. you know, just a couple months later, sort of getting the opportunity with MakerPad to be a creator in residence and, you know, sort of put that, those skills that you just acquired and have been practicing mm -hmm. for into practice for the yeah. first time. And one of those other skills is podcasting. And it's not every day that you talk to people with two podcasts, let alone one. <laughs> so you have two podcasts. There's Talks with Sarah No Socks, and I actually just made an appearance, and I'll link to it in the show notes. And there's also, can I tell you something funny? How did those podcasts start? And I'm curious, you know, just sort of like the, the, the origins of it, given sort of your background and, and, and all the things you're involved in. Yeah. I, can I tell you something funny was first, and that started as a joke. I, my my friend Chris and I, so the co-host, his name is Chris, and we were co-workers and have just been, you know, really good friends and we think we're hilarious. Some of our friends think we're funny and we just have a really kind of very Seinfeld-esque sense of humor and try and find humor in everything. And it started in 2019, no, 2018, 2018, 2019, gosh, I can't remember. It's been three years. 
So however long that is, I don't it's know okay. what year it is. With COVID, it's who knows time <laughs> like, anymore. I lost it's just, last year, yeah. I have no idea. But anyway, yeah, we started it because we, I wanted to start a podcast. And I'm like, hey, hmm. don't you think it would be fun if we did this together? And he's like, yeah, absolutely, let's do it. And like anything you start that you don't know how to do, it's awful. I mean, we literally just used our phones and we were using, I had my iPad at one point, Anchor is what we use, and I still use it today. And yeah, it, it has built-in software. And I'm like, well, I don't have a microphone or anything. But the thing about it was, is it kind of got us going. And then I found out I really liked it. And you know, what started out as a joke, all of a sudden became like a hobby and then a passion. And then I'm like, oh, I would love to have this as a career, actually. This is pretty amazing. So it still exists today. I do no marketing for it at all because it wasn't that wasn't really the goal. Like it was just more, we get together every week and chat anyway, so why not record mm-hmm. it? and you know, share funny things with people. And uh, yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's doing really well. It has a ton of downloads and uh, yeah. it's it's hit or miss. Yeah, I think it's like over 5,000 downloads now, which I think is pretty amazing for something that I never promote to anyone. And yeah, and I think it it's only like 80% listenership in the States. Everywhere else is international. So it always wow. makes me laugh that I'm like, wow, that's just crazy that my voice is heard around the world and we're literally telling crazy stories about what happens in the apartment building next door i mean it's just so nuts um yeah and how many yeah. episodes has has that been going on for i think we're at like 70 70 72 maybe 74 wow that's amazing yeah, yeah. and when you say no marketing like you literally just started you know Nothing. hitting publish and then like didn't say anything so everyone who's found it has basically just found it on their own or by referral yeah. or things like that i have a an instagram page for it okay that that's about it. And I can't tell you the last time I updated it. We put out so many episodes. I Yeah, no marketing, nothing. Told friends about it. You know, we're like, hey. Initially, we didn't because we're like, oh, this is pretty bad. We don't really want people to listen. Like, <laughs> wait till we get better. But now it's kind of a running joke on, on the show. Very late editing. You know, it's meant to be pretty much like you're listening in at a bar, basically. You know, right. we roll right into it. There's no intro. We'll say at some point who we are and that, like, this is the show. You haven't clicked on the wrong thing. But it's just... <laughs> It's a ton of fun and it's a good stress reliever, I think. And sometimes I, w- I was looking for something that just was like funny because I yeah. feel like there's a Light lot of push humor, but yeah, just like funny. So yeah, anyway. that's awesome. Yeah. And then you decided to start another podcast. So how did that happen? <laughs> yeah, I really loved it. And I started Talks with Sarah No Socks originally because I wanted to chat with people about COVID and kind of the mental health suffering suffering they were going through with COVID and all of the changes mm. that we saw. And then I thought, okay, I actually want to talk to small business owners and see how this is impacting them, including freelancers, makers. I know it's all like different titles, but folks who are finding money from other people and not <laughs> at an yeah, employer. Indie folks. Yeah. yeah. And so it started out a bit of my own journey and I was doing some YouTube videos and then scraping the audio and making that a podcast. I'm like, no, this doesn't feel right. So it was kind of a little bit of a playground and it still is a, a bit, I must say, all with the goal of meeting really incredible people and sharing their story. Because I I know that there are a ton of podcasts out there. There's just so many incredible stories and highlighting some of these amazing people who have gone through just so much and are still going through so much and on the things that they have to share especially uh failure is my big thing (laughs) so surrounding failure so the show really focuses on how to take failure and turn that into success and that may not be evident but it might be a step on their path and i think it's just there's something really beautiful about meeting people that everyone else is overlooking and highlighting them yeah. Yeah. Well, I love the premise too, as well, because it's not every day that you sort of come across a podcast where failure is a big, you know, a big theme. Like how did you land on that being kind of one of the core pillars of what the podcast was about? Yeah. It transitioned in this year, January of this year to, to about failure. I've always been big on failure, scared to death of success. And I talk pretty openly about that. Success hmm. to me, it means like, that's it. There's nothing after it. I find it's, it's difficult to repeat and I don't know what if and failure has always been a a constant and a given and not anything that i have really seen negatively like if i didn't like something or something wasn't going well i just quit i didn't forget everything that happened but i thought this isn't serving me and i think it ties back to 
my time as a nurse and all of those stories and just recognizing that tomorrow it could all be different. So why are you still doing things and focusing on things that aren't pushing you forward? So I actually put out a tweet in late fall that asked folks like, which do you fear more, success or failure? And it was an 80-20 of most everybody (laughs) fears failure over success. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting to talk about. People are so scared of failure. Like, let's talk about how failure is really a good thing if you just spin your thinking on it. So that's Hmm. why I decided to make it a a priority. Yeah, yeah. How did you learn to use Twitter like that to sort of like, you know, survey your audience and learn how they're thinking and then make a decision based off of that. By watching other people do it. <laughs> a lot of social listening. I really was not active on Twitter at all until July of this year. I mm. kind of started out this whole journey on Instagram, like I think a lot of people do. I talked myself into getting Facebook and very quickly deleted it. It was overwhelming and not the right fit for me. And LinkedIn just wasn't kind of the aspect I was going for, especially after trying to shed corporate, it felt very odd. And most of my connections were all my former colleagues. And so it just was a weird dynamic. But when I started to use Twitter and really curate my feed, I found all these amazing people asking questions and basically using it as a platform to just talk to their potential customers or clients or anybody. I thought, wow, this is really powerful and so simple. Why don't more people do this? So I just started asking and <laughs> sometimes your tweets go nowhere, but right. sometimes you get really, really cool insights. So yeah, I just started focusing more on it. Yeah, that's a great muscle to build. I remember sort of thinking for the first time, like me, I really know, I know that I should sort of ask questions, you know, mm-hmm. and sort of just like, but it's scary because, you know, it's like, what if no one mm-hmm. responds or, you know, what if it sort of falls on deaf ears and people don't get it or they you know misunderstand my question or maybe they don't like it maybe they feel like I'm, I'm bugging them but then you start doing it you start to realize that actually people love to engage with you that mm-hmm. way and it's actually a really good way to build relationships with people but it's you have to get over that initial sort of hump and fear of you know of the fear of failure to get a response essentially yeah, yeah it's super scary to put yourself out there that was one of the biggest things I've worked through over the past well, 15 months now I'm still working on it it's it's scary to put yourself out there and for all the reasons you just mentioned what if people take it wrong what I've learned is that you know depending on how small your audience is, a lot of people aren't going to see your tweets. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's kind of great because you can, you know, have all these live thoughts that if you regret, you can certainly delete them or just use them as a learning experience and keep going. I think sometimes the tweets that rub people the wrong way is a a really great opportunity to engage and see another point of view. Hmm. Again, that's with a grain of salt and everything with context (laughs) because there are some of those, there isn't another great point of view, but yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. It just, it's a good platform to flex that muscle and kind of get over putting yourself out there and talking to people. You meet some amazing people on Twitter if you are comfortable with opening up even a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things I've been interested in, kind of curious about is sort of like this personal brand kind of persona that you've created for yourself, Sarah No Socks. Where did that come from? And and sort of why is that sort of your 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 strategy for putting yourself out there and this persona that you're building? Yeah, that's a great question. Everybody wants to know why Sarah No Socks. There is no <laughs> like mystery. I hate socks. <laughs> I haven't worn socks. I I'm a runner, so I wear socks when I run and that's it. I'm not a fan. Hmm. I, I live in flip flops. I live in Ufus specifically. It is not a sponsor. They should be of me because that is all I wear uh, is Ufus. So if they're listening, get in touch. Uh, Yeah, I just, it was actually a nickname given to me in college. I went out Ah. in a snowstorm with sandals on. And she was like, you're Sarah No Socks. Why aren't you wearing any any socks? And it just kind of stuck. So people have referred to me as Sarah No Socks for a while. And it really embodies who I am, kind of that like free-spirited, grounded type person, right? So I, I always picture people who don't wear socks and shoes. You're very connected to the earth and grounded. Always found a lot of comfort in the ocean and, you know, kind of your toes in the sand and just being able to feel everything from the ground up. So it kind of just really 
embodies me. The second reason I use that is because I've had some really negative interactions, including my last name. So I tend to not use that very much. Oh, wow. And I think that's probably one of the things that we don't talk about as women enough. And, you know, the, the harassment and things that we experience just by putting your full name online, you end up with some not so nice things. So kind of was a way to, to do both. Yeah, that's fascinating. I've actually been listening. I don't know if you've sort of heard of this or followed this conversation at all, but I've been listening to a couple of people who have been talking about, there's actually uh, one person in particular who thinks that sort of the future of the internet is that we all have these sort of pseudonyms mm -hmm. and we all have these almost like usernames essentially where we yeah. work and live under like a fake name. I don't know if fake is the right word, but basically like a, a name given to ourselves that, that we choose, but isn't, you know, who we are legally, I guess it right. is. Does that resonate with you? Like, what do you think about that? Yeah, I'm torn. I mean, I'm very transparent about me as the person. I just may not share my personal details. Again, online, you have to be careful. Like, there are a lot of amazing people, but it's also an opportunity for people to really take your <laughs> personal life. So, you know, you have to be careful and everybody has to decide their level. I, I think anonymity to a point can be done, but it's it's lost when you know there isn't a real person behind it. You know, if you don't have mm. a profile picture and if you don't know that this is a human being you're interacting with, then I start to lose trust. So I think that's why I don't usually interact with brands. I interact with people. And that's kind of why I wanted to tie it together with me that yes, I am kind of a brand, but you know, my picture is everywhere and, and the same. So people know that I'm an actual person and don't get confused that I'm some sort of bot or, AI generated person. <laughs> yeah, you're not catfishing. You're, right, not, uh, exactly. you're not trying to trick anyone. Yeah. You're not no socks here. Sarah, no socks. Right. And, uh, there's exactly still that, right. that personality there. You've, I, I, I was curious. I wanted to contrast that because you actually made it a point to be pretty transparent around financials and what you're building and mm -hmm. what you struggle with and like being very sort of open about your journey as as a creator and mm -hmm. as, a, as a freelancer. So I, I'm also curious your thought process around, you know, why be so open and vulnerable with your audience and what you share? Yeah, I'm open and vulnerable because I felt like that was missing. It's coming into its own now with no code and the build in public folks. But when I started on this journey, I listened to a ton of podcasts. You know, I went to all these webinars and seminars and had local meetup groups and nobody was talking about what I like to call the sticky middle, right? Hmm. Like, oh yeah, six months later, now I have a $30,000 contract. Okay, well, what the hell happened in those six months? Like, <laughs> were you crying for weeks at a time? Cause that's happened to me. So why right. isn't anybody talking about that? You know, and people not talking about that they had, you know, literally four and five months of making $0 and they didn't know what they were gonna do and they're giving away work for free and they still can't get people to notice them and their Instagram strategy isn't working. I'm like, these are the day-to-day -day things that this lifestyle embodies and people don't talk about it. It's so frustrating, mm. <laughs> so frustrating to me because I'm like, it cannot all be roses and sunshine and you can't just say, oh yeah, I was depressed for a couple months and then bam, I wrote a book. No, I don't, I don't care, <laughs> good for you, but that's not helping me. So I just started being transparent because I thought that's what I was missing. So hopefully that helps somebody else who's thinking about this journey or you know, embarking on this journey realize that it can definitely be done, but it is not easy. Many days are not fun. And it's, it's just one of those things that you should have all the information before you dive in. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Cause it is harder, harder than it looks. And I think it's a way, you know, I don't know how you think about it, but it's a way to sort of build empathy with your audience and show mm -hmm. your personality and who you are. And sort of when you put it all out there, then there's nothing mysterious about who you are and right. sort of, uh, what you see is what you get. Right. And so that, yes. that can be a, a plus for anyone who wants to connect with you, work with you, refer you to someone else. Right. But is it, is that how you think about it? Yeah, I definitely wanted to be transparent. Again, like I said, I didn't want people to assume that because I was working under a brand and not like my full name that I was some enigma and not really a, a person. I do think it builds trust. And I think it's important to show people to that when you're presented with new information, you can change your mind. You know, I recorded a, a podcast episode in the middle of last summer when I was having like a serious bout of depression about how you shouldn't be paying for communities and I don't understand why this is and everybody wants to charge $35, you know, 
and I've talked openly about how paid communities have literally changed my life. But it's one of those things that you, you know, it was almost as much for me as it is for other people to see that this is an evolution and a process. And I wasn't in the right communities. And that's why I felt that push. But when I started to find the right communities, then it's a no brainer because you connect with people and you're like, oh, yes, this is the value I was seeking. So I think that's the other part, too, that it shows folks a lot of vulnerability and being wrong and presented with new information and (laughs) changing your opinion. That's normal. Right, right. And that's okay. And that's acceptable. And you can be wrong and you can, you can, you can change your mind and sort of give a different narrative. What, one of the other things, or actually there's two things that you've been sort of building in public. One is podcast ops Mm -hmm. and the other one is helping creatives slash Mm -hmm. a community finder. Could you walk me through it? We can just go one by one. We can start with podcast ops. Like how did that come to be? And, uh, and what is it also? It's sort of like a, a course tutorial kind of package around podcast automation. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. It's kind of a podcasting toolkit for self-producing podcasters. So because I had two podcasts, you know, it takes a lot of work to produce a podcast episode. I think folks like assume you just turn off and hit publish and away you go. And some people do that. There's nothing wrong with it. But I, I like to edit, cut down and do all those things. And when I picked up a second one, I very quickly realized I needed to figure out some way to automate some of these steps and save as much time as I could. And while I learned how to do all of my editing and things, and that couldn't be replaced, I started to think about the content and how I was getting things out to increase visibility, particularly with talks with Sarah No Socks. Like we said, I don't really (laughs) market, can I tell you something funny at all? But with talks with Sarah No Socks, I have all these amazing interviews and I'm like, oh, I gotta repurpose this content or at least get it on a website. How can I break this down? So I built an Airtable database to kind of break down the entire show. So I do all my host prep in there for my guest interviews and then cover art and, you know, all the video clips and timestamps for things I want to call out, my transcriptions when they're done, that's where they go and all of that. So it, that particular database I found really, really useful for me because some of it is manual, some of it is automated from either Zapier or Integromat insert automation tool here, whichever you want to use. But it was a really easy way for me to kind of pull everything together in one spot that I could use throughout the process to help me save time. So for me, it saved about two to four hours a week, you know, because (laughs) I had all these pieces all over the place. So that, yes, it's essentially that. And then I went ahead and built a Webflow template so you could get your podcast online. I use Anchor, so that's what it's built with, but you could swap out whoever your hosting service is. And then did some videos around how to use either Integromat or Zapier to work through the automation. So it's templates slash a course on how to uh, make these templates your own and hopefully save you time and energy if you're self-podcasting. Yeah, I love that. Well, what was it like launching it, you know, and sort of like patching it up, packaging it up as a product? Did you, you know, was there sort of like a, uh, a strategy involved or was it just kind of like, you know, getting people up to speed on what you're working on and then saying, mm-hmm. hey, it's available on Twitter? Or what, what was that like? Yeah. So I've talked pretty openly about this. I didn't really have a great strategy <laughs> or marketing plan. I basically said, hey, I feel like this is useful to me. Twitter, do you feel like this is useful to you? And they all said, yes. And I made the rookie mistake of saying, well, which would be more useful? The automations, the templates, do you want templates and videos? When you ask people all of the questions, you're going to get all of the answers. And it was, yes, we want all of this. (laughs) Okay, well, I already have it done for me. It won't be hard at all. Wrong, wrong, wrong. (laughs) So I said that, I think the end of January, and I started building it in February. And it took me a month. I thought it was only going to take me a couple weeks because I'd already had it built. But when you have to rebuild it for other people and template things out, you know, I put in descriptions and it ended up being way more than I ever should have taken on, uh, especially for our first paid product. I had launched a couple of other like side projects and things, but never anything paid. So I did the pre-launch, put it up on Gumroad, and I got six pre-sales, which I was really thrilled about. I'm like, six strangers on the internet want to give me money? This is crazy. Thank you. Yeah. And I wanted 10. 10 was my goal. Fell short. It's okay. And just built it. And then again, fell victim to, you know, a couple of folks asking, hey, can I have this early? I have always been a people pleaser working on that. So I was like, oh, sure. 
and just really killed myself for the month of February trying to get this all done. So my strategy, not having a strategy didn't go well. And marketing was non-existent. I was so busy building. I didn't have enough time to promote it. I do a couple updates here and there. So I learned a ton from the experience of absolutely what not to do next. And I think it's a great product. I think it could be better. It's not as straightforward as I had hoped it would be. You do have to be comfortable with Airtable and Webflow to use it. Uh, the automations, I think, are pretty pretty basic, and I walk you through step-by-step step with those, so I think anybody could set them up. But Airtable is maybe a little bit more difficult than I would have liked and would have hoped if I had maybe tackled just one piece. So I learned a lot from the experience, and yeah, hopefully it'll, it'll keep selling. It's still for sale. <laughs> I would love feedback from anybody. <laughs> I actually just recently pulled out the Airtable and automations and made them a separate item. Oh, so if you're not using Webflow, you can you know use that if you want to figure out how to automate and uh, break down some of your content for another well, website still, service. Yeah, I mean, it's still a huge success. I, I think it's Jack Butcher who says that, you know, once you make your first dollar on the internet through a product, you know, it's sort of like the, there's a, a B, C, and there's a, an A, C. It's like, you know, after, before your first dollar, then after your first dollar and yeah. sort of changes your whole perspective about, you know, what's possible and um, mm-hmm. sort of builds that muscle where you get in your, your reps and your sets. But you mentioned that, you know, you learn from some things about it. Like what, what do you feel like you took away from that experience? Yeah. The first thing I learned was not to take on too much. So my MVP should have been either just a Webflow template or the Airtable database or mm. automations. Like it should have been one of those pieces, not all of those pieces. Because I had everything already built out, I just assumed that it would be super easy to package that up. And it wasn't. So that was the first lesson is just too much. It was too much. And the second thing was, and I still struggling with this, trying to articulate the value to other podcasters, especially if you're not familiar with the no code tools. You know, it's very niche, very niche. And there are a lot of no coders who are podcasting now, but I don't know that it's enough to fill that market. So I might re-envision it in a little bit and figure out how I can make it a bit scaled down and more beneficial to a broader podcaster audience. Hmm. I love it. Well, I wouldn't sell yourself short. I think it's a great product and uh, it's super, super fun idea. If I wasn't already all hooked up <laughs> with my own no-code stuff, I mean, I wish that it existed you know, a year ago. That way I could have saved myself the trouble of figuring it out all myself. But like you said, I mean, e- even from my perspective, you know, having a little bit more sort of marketing experience and not just kind of being, you know, one of those people who just can't help but give unsolicited feedback. Around. You mentioned sort of the, the origin story, right, of like mm-hmm. having multiple podcasts and wanting to save time. And that time saving really is huge. I think anyone who runs podcasts would resonate with the idea that podcasts are very, very time intensive. And mm-hmm. so anything you can do to streamline the process, introduce automation, save time that you can do to, you know, repurpose elsewhere to focus on other things. Like that's an amazing value prop to me. I was, I just hooked up something the other day, I added to an automation where now every time I publish a new episode, it automatically creates a new, you know, Webflow CMS page. Mm-hmm. And that way I just have to click publish on mm-hmm. each episode. And I was like, oh my gosh, why didn't I do this before? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I could have yeah. saved myself so much time. And it's crazy. So, but I mean, even then, the amazing thing is that's just my perspective. But all of your customers and people who have looked at it or have even seen it before, you could just ask them, "Hey, you know, what do you think is the value of this? Like, why do you think other people would buy this, or why did you buy it?" And just take their answers, and that's that's your marketing messaging right there. Yeah, yeah, I definitely need to. I have a few folks I've been in talks with, and they haven't had a chance to implement it yet. So, anxiously awaiting when they do, and I can get a bit more <laughs> feedback on marketing. Yeah, no, it's great. Well, one of the other amazing projects you've been working on is Community Finder, which I've actually used several times. It's just a great database of communities and sort of just like a central place where you can, you know, get plugged into these sort of curated, vetted uh, communities that, you know, that, that you can join. Like, how did that come to be? And what's the process been like putting that out into the wild for people to use? Yeah. Community Finder was, again, I just doing some social listening on Twitter and I joined uh, a community launch MBA back in November, late November 2020. And the, the whole premise behind that is it's a no code community, but you're to build 12 products in 12 months and get used to the idea of shipping fast and failing fast and just keep going. And so I had no idea what I was going to build. And I thought, 
hmm, you know, people are always asking about where should you get started in no code and where can you meet people? And a lot of people were pushing out Twitter lists and I'm like, no way, man, there are so many amazing communities. Why doesn't somebody hmm. just have a list of them somewhere? And sure, there were some, but it seemed like they were so spread out and there wasn't really like a Google for communities, which <laughs> seemed bizarre right. to me. So I just started building. I'm like, this would be pretty cool. So I put everything in Airtable and I'm like, well, I'd really like to make it pretty though. The designer in me was like, hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> I built it all out and launched it and I launched it in December. And this is where imposter syndrome comes in. So I purposely launched it on a Sunday afternoon, hoping that nobody would see it. So that's not ridiculous. <laughs> I was super proud of it, but I was scared to death that people were going to think this was ridiculous and just not find the value that I found in it. So I kind of like launched this tweet and then went out into the wild and I was running errands and doing things and working out and I came back and I couldn't believe the response and people were so excited and so happy to see this and had such great feedback and I thought wow that's really powerful and I'm you know shocked but pleasantly surprised that people found this as valuable as I did the whole point in me doing it was because like I touched upon you know for the first eight months I didn't have the right community and I didn't have an easy way to search for the right community. So I really wanted to build a tool to help other people not have that issue. And then I thought, well, this would be really great if we could add design communities and illustration communities and writing communities and just make it a huge database of all of these great creative spaces that are outside of company forums and Facebook and Reddit. You know, those are pretty easy to find, but there's mm -hmm. a lot of amazing founders just building these super fantastic spaces for people and putting so much time and effort into it and they should be highlighted so i just started curating them i love it yeah and then posting on twitter again i, I think i saw it was maybe your most popular tweet to date but it was basically mm -hmm. just everyone kind of pouring in like look at this awesome thing and like well done and look how cool this is and um I'm wondering like where do you think that that kind of social capital came from where people were so willing to be supportive of what you're working on and and uh, and want to you know lift you up and amplify what you're doing. Yeah, I wish I could say I knew. I've been asked a lot about my strategy behind launching Community Finder and I think it's one of those things that it was a product that filled a need I had. And so it was built with that intent that, you know, I had this problem and I want to help other people avoid this problem and a lot of times those are the the hits in the market because you already have it validated, right? You knew right. it was an issue. I had been listening and recognized that this was an issue a lot of people were talking about. So once you have that validation already, all you have to do is put it out there. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it. I'm actually building it out more and I just added on to it. So Community Finder was such a big hit and I recognized that some of these other tools and resources that I have used in bits and pieces along the way really tie into that as part of this journey of moving mm. from corporate to a creative, a paid creative. And people are all along that path. Uh, some people are just starting and don't even know where to start. Some people are two years in and, you know, bouncing back and forth between like, oh, I had to go back and get a job. And so I wanted to kind of bring everything together to have a, a starting point for people, right? Like here's Community Finder. These are the groups of folks you should be connecting with if you want to be in those spaces. And mm. Ikigai, I don't know if you know Ikigai. Do people know Ikigai? Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. yeah. so it's a Japanese so intersection phrase. of, yeah. Right, ahead. yeah, it means reason for being. And we've kind of westernized it into this Venn diagram-ish thing. <laughs> but it, it's essentially like, <laughs> what do you love? What are you good at? What does the world need? And what can you make money doing? very basic understanding of that and so i'm working together to put together some tools around that to help people hmm. iterate on that you know we're fluid beings so you're not always gonna love <laughs> things that you loved before you're gonna get good at some things that you weren't good at before and so putting together some tools around that to kind of help you revisit it and see what options you might have so that's coming as part of it as well and then i launched a newsletter and the end goal will be a community, you know, so folks can connect with other people maybe that are a few years ahead of where they want to be so you can really meet one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> but yeah, that, that all came about just this last week. I kind of had that epiphany moment chatting with a friend who said, hey, I kind of want to work on a project. Do you have anything you're thinking about? And I 
just outlaid the whole plan and uh, was really one of those moments I went, oh, all of this ties together. Why didn't I think of this before? But yeah, yeah. That's awesome. It's all because of, I think the social listening has been a big theme there. And that's awesome. I, I wanted to to ask you about something just to get kind of your thoughts on it, because I feel like as, as a creator and for a lot of creative people, the dream is to, you know, to make your art and to have that sort of support you and, and to mm-hmm. make your living. And so you can just, you know, make art forever. But I think that what a lot of people figure out and, or at least just kind of experiences that, you know, making your art to sell it, or to be sort of monetized in some way can sometimes kill the joy of actually making the art in the first yeah. place. Is that something that you've experienced or that you try to be mindful of? Yes, I haven't experienced it personally. I think because I am passionate about many things and am trying to diversify my income stream, I haven't hit that point, but I do know people that have. My advice would be if you are at that point that you should probably seek your income from something that you are good at and that you like and not your passion. And I think that's Mm. one piece that we don't talk about enough, again, and aren't transparent. Your passion doesn't always have to be the thing you're making money from. And a lot of times it will lead to burnout if you aren't comfortable with all the pieces that go along with making your passion a business. I think those are the pieces that really, really tear people down, right? The fact that you are a marketer, an accountant, (laughs) you know, a social media uh, consultant, all of these things, you know, it's so many moving pieces. And all if all you want to do is design, then you should work for a company that that's all you do is design and like make fun, cool projects on the side. So I think that's the piece for me. It hasn't led to that because I I specifically look for three income streams. I don't want to be reliant on one thing. Mm. One, because I am a polymath and I really enjoy doing multiple things. And two, because I don't want to get burnt out on one specific thing. Yeah. Well, one of the other things that you haven't been shy about sharing is sort of your struggle with marketing. I think that a lot of mm-hmm. creators and creatives also struggle with marketing for that very reason. But I'm curious, like, wh- why do you think that marketing in particular is a struggle for a lot of creators and, you know, getting over the the feeling and sort of the, mm-hmm. the hump of, of putting yourself out there and promoting what you're working mm-hmm. on and even trying to, you know, sell what you create. Yeah, I, for me, I can't speak for everybody, but I think for me, the personal struggle has been, I really want to help as many people as possible. And I have a difficult time putting uh, money to that and feeling like it's, forced to other people and that's my own internal vision of it it's not i recognize the value that i can offer to a lot of people and look forward to being able to provide that for them but it's kind of that rub of you know (laughs) maybe they could find this cheaper maybe i'm not the best person to do it and the internal imposter syndrome and then they're like oh but i need to eat and pay my bills so I'm gonna have to figure out how to (laughs) you know walk this fine line the other thing I think creators struggle with in general is anytime you're making something that's public facing you come under scrutiny and criticism like it or not there are going to be people that do not appreciate what you have done but they don't understand you know in the design world the business case for it and the maybe there's technical reasons it couldn't have been done or a business case it couldn't have been done you know, maybe it's in the roadmap and you can launch it right now. And I think anything that is public facing and under scrutiny, it's just a muscle that you have to keep flexing and learn how to take that criticism and, you know, filter out what's useful and beneficial to help you grow and then just let everything else fall by the wayside. Social media has made it very easy for people to have an opinion on everything and for you to see that directly yeah. where we didn't have that 10 years ago, you know? So that's a tough hurdle and rub for I think a lot of creatives to get over because you do get so passionate about your work and you're really excited about the things you're sharing and what all you're contributing. And when that misses the mark a little bit, it can be really devastating to get over. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's so true. I, I heard someone describe recently that marketing used to be kind of like shouting into you know a room in front of an audience, like a, like a play where you can't see the audience because it's all sort of blacked out and all you see are the lights in front of you. And so you can sort of do your performance um, Mm -hmm. as if people weren't there. But then 
you know, the digital age kind of came and the internet mm-hmm. came and then it was like all the lights were turned on. Everyone can see you, you can hear them. And then like you can see their expressions and you're watching every reaction to what you do. And it's a completely different dynamic than what mm-hmm. it was before. Because like you said, you're, you're really putting yourself out there, but you're also, it's just, it's a two way street now. There's so much more interaction mm-hmm. these days than there was before. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing is too, you have to be comfortable with business, right? If you are selling products or selling your services as a product, there's a whole business side that comes to that. So the marketing may not be necessarily what's hanging you up. It's the fact that you actually have to talk to somebody that when they come back to you, what do you say? Mm. How do you approach it? How do we talk about money? And all of those steps. I think it, it sometimes, especially for me, clouds my marketing <laughs> uh, because I get more concerned about what happens when. Like, okay, I put it mm. out there. People are like, yes, we love this. We want to talk to you. I'm like, why? <laughs> like, <laughs> we don't need to talk about it. Like, just send me, you know, and, and all of those stuff. So it's, again, I think a muscle you have to flex and, and just get used to it. And for me personally, I just need to figure out how to shed the negative connotation that comes with marketing. Marketing, it's tough. That's <laughs> a tough one. Yeah. On, on your Talk with Sarah No Socks podcast, you talk a lot about failure like we've talked about. And so I was I was hoping, I was wondering if I could sort of turn the table and, and turn it back to you because, you know, you like to talk about it, you want to normalize it and it's sort of a, mm-hmm. it's not always a bad thing. We can learn from these lessons. So I was wondering if you could tell me maybe an example or just some sort of story about, you know, something that maybe you would call a marketing failure and what you learned from it. Is there anything that comes to mind for you? Oh yeah, so many. We don't have time for all of them. <laughs> I, my biggest marketing failure to date has been with podcast apps, right? Because I didn't think about marketing while I was building it. And I didn't consider the value it brings to others as the marketing. Like, that, mm. I don't know why. <laughs> that just doesn't click with me. But for whatever reason, it was kind of the biggest fail because I built it in a silo right so that was the number one issue i didn't get feedback early enough so now i'm waiting for feedback but i should have really been talking to the people who pre-ordered it while i was building it and maybe pushed it out a month or two but made it more of what they wanted and then uh, yeah i just don't talk about the value enough and now i'm in this tricky spot of i get so burnt out building it that I don't want to talk about it anymore because this is like a bad spot in my head and um, articulating the value that it brings to others. I I have a real difficult time. How do I say this eloquently? Elaborating or uh, stretching any kind of truth. I'm a very Mm -hmm. like, I will not lie to you about anything. I'm a very direct, honest person. So I think that's the rub for me with marketing too. Like, how do I stay true to myself? but still show the value that it brings. It's difficult for me because in my mind, I'm like, well, I don't know how many hours it's gonna save you. I know how many hours it saved me, but I don't wanna just say like, hey, it'll save you four hours and then have somebody come back and be like, what? You're a liar. (laughs) It didn't save me any time. It only saved me three and a half. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah, so definitely podcast apps, biggest marketing fail to date. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's a great example. And I'm actually really glad that you brought that up because I think it's easy to to err on the side of being very, modest or conservative maybe mm-hmm. on like the messaging and with with your marketing and sort of the value that it can bring to other people and again like you say you want to really like stretch the truth or mm-hmm. sort of exaggerate the value that it brings to people but you also don't want to undersell it and you also don't want to um, i went that way <laughs> right right exactly mm-hmm. so you, you don't want to it only saves you five minutes a week when it could save you four hours a week which is a totally you right. know fair way to describe it but that's a, that's a great example and i appreciate you sharing that is there any like long-held marketing beliefs or best practices or things that you see out there being done that you disagree with mm, so much <laughs> <laughs> i i i disagree with what i just touched upon right that they always sell the best possible case scenario i hate mm. that i i, I don't because the odds of that happening are so slim to none that it's very frustrating for me. And that's why I don't generally take in a lot of marketing because I don't believe it. There's so much marketing that I don't believe. I believe people, I don't believe companies. And Mm. I think that they're always, of course, trying to sell themselves in the best light possible. Absolutely. But there's just not enough transparency about the things that are happening or that went wrong. 
I do appreciate some of these companies that are building in public and a bit more transparent with those things. So that definitely helps build that trust up. Yeah, I just generally don't take in a lot of marketing because I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But before we hit record, you mentioned that you're sort of like the the hardest sell, hardest and sell. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, and and it's hard to get you to really sort of trust and believe in any sort of marketing coming your way or sales message, you know, coming your way, which I think there's absolutely a healthy skepticism and actually something that I think I've, I've been realizing and telling other people is that, especially again with, with the internet and where like media creation is completely democratized and Mm -hmm. product creation is completely democratized and everyone can do anything, then it, then it is actually a question of, well, who do you listen to and who do you trust and Mm -hmm. who do you buy from? Because everyone and anyone has something to say and to, Mm -hmm. and, and to sell. And so I, I think that, you know, your perspective is an interesting case study of that observation that I've made before. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I, I'm a really tough sell on anything. I, I will buy things to support other creators and creatives, but man, when it comes to products, it's, it's very difficult for me to buy something very difficult. And I really have to know like what value it's going to add to me. Hmm. And that's, I don't know. I don't know why I'm such a tough sell, but I just really am. (laughs) Again, I don't blame you at all. I think uh, we're all tough cells, whether we whether we know it or acknowledge it. Some people just maybe are looser with their wallet than than others. Mm-hmm. But one thing you, we had talked about you that you bought recently. Well, there was something that you bought recently, and that sort of it was something you were happy to, to buy and support. Yes. Could you walk me through you know the experience and the decision to buy this this thing, and, and what was it? Yeah, so my most recent purchase was the community building course by Rosie Sherry, Rosie Land. Yeah, what what prompted me to buy it? Trust. She is very transparent, very open about everything she's been doing for community, tons of social proof, and you know, lots of people talking about the amazing things that she's done on top of the fact that she's built amazing communities, you know, just exiting Indie Hackers, which we all know is a fantastic community, just landed another role building a community. So again, I bought it because it's a person that I know that I connected with and the messaging is clear. There's no trying to sell it. I actually didn't even know this course existed until I heard another AMA. Even though I was following it in the network, you know, I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> and I was in another AMA session in Launch MBA and the speaker mentioned that she got a, a um, scholarship for it. I'm like, what? I want to take this course. Yeah. So that's how I ended up buying it. And I'm thrilled. I'm like, what's today? Thursday? Wednesday? Three or yeah, four Wednesday. days in. Wednesday. Thank you. I lose track of time. Yeah. It just started on Monday and man, so much value out of that already. I couldn't believe it. Day one. I'm like, this is fantastic. That's awesome. So that's funny because you you had been following Rosie for a long time and been sort of her fan, but it wasn't until someone else mentioned that she was building the course that you sort of first learned about it. And then sounds like it was sort of like an instant buy for you. Like there was no question about whether or not it was, you know, the decision. It was fairly easy. It was it was sort of done at that point once you heard about it. Yeah, actually, it wasn't instant. I looked at it on a Saturday, and then I went back on Sunday. <laughs> And maybe I shouldn't tell this, but I will because she's amazing. The yeah. course was actually closed. Oh, and interesting. And I had this sinking feeling in my stomach. I'm like, oh no, oh no, I waited too long. And I quick sent her a DM and I was like, hey, if there's any way possible, could I still get into this course? I understand if I can't, I can't believe I waited. I should have bought it yesterday. And she very graciously opened it back up for me to buy and then uh, closed mm. it again. So I'm forever grateful to her. But I think just another, you know, huge selling point, like <laughs> I knew I could reach out to her and that she would be responsive. It wasn't really a question to me of whether or not she would get back to me. It was just, you know, it's either going to be yes or no. And it would have been fine if she said no. I would have been mad at myself, not at her. But I'm yeah. super, super grateful that she made an exception. Hopefully yeah. I'll do her proud. How did, you, <laughs> how did you first start following Rosie? Do you remember like when or why or what was going through your mind when you um, sort of figured that she'd be a good person to keep keep tabs with? Yeah, I want to say it was probably around December of this year when I became, or last year, December of 2020, when I became familiar okay. with her. Really when I started to get active with Launch MBA and kind of find all of these little inner groups. I'm not, mm. I'm not part of Indie Hackers, believe it or not. I just am in too many communities and there's so much yeah. crossover with all the different groups that I'm in. 
And I just keep, kept hearing her name over and over again about community. And so the more I looked at mm. community, I was like, oh, hmm. But it's so funny on Twitter. I don't, I don't know how soon I was following her. So many people show up in your feed and you think you're following them, but then you, <laughs> you realize you're not. Right. You're like, oh, crap. Yeah. I don't hit follow. Uh, so I have that happen with a lot of people. But yeah, I would say probably in December that I started following her. So yeah. And then what, what was it about the, I mean, why did you buy the community? Like, is there a particular, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, not the community, the, the course, the course. Mm -hmm. uh, was there a particular outcome or a thing you're hoping to achieve from it or a skill you're hoping to learn? Yeah. So for me, just community has been huge and I've been helping in a couple of communities, helping the founders. And I wanted to learn more about it with the end goal that eventually I want to launch my own community and I should really know what that looks like and do the right thing and plan it out <laughs> and not just like mm. throw up a paywall and say, hey, come join me. So I guess I am marketing a bit, right? Because I'm building yeah. it and doing the proper research and all of those things. So that was why I thought, here's someone who has very successfully built and managed communities. And of course, she has some great speakers in there. And it was very clearly outlined what you were getting, what was expected. You know, from, from all those perspectives, there weren't any like gray areas. You knew what was going to happen when you mm. went in. So. Were there any other like community related books or courses or resources that you had either bought before or considered before this one? Sure didn't. Nope. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think I just kind of fell in love with community building, I would say in the last three months and didn't really recognize that it resonated so much with me until I got really actively mm. involved with a couple of founders. And I thought, oh man, this is amazing. And I really, for them, I'm helping with a lot of the operations pieces and you know, trying to increase engagement and those kinds of things. But the connections that I've formed in these communities and because of my own story and not having those connections for so long, just super passionate about bringing that forward and helping as many people find those connections as I can. Yeah, that's amazing. I also wanted to ask you about, again, I know that you're sort of not a marketer, but my, one of my favorite questions is to take a sneak peek at your own swipe file, uh -huh. as it were, just about any you know marketing examples or campaigns or people, maybe in this case, mm -hmm. that are worthy of, you know, sort of that you admire or that you appreciate. Uh, are there any examples or favorites that come to mind for you? Yeah, I have two actually. So Dan Petty, who's a designer, just recently started teaching. He started in the fall teaching UI courses and other design courses, portfolio courses, books. And I just really appreciate his marketing and I'm sure he wouldn't call it marketing either, but he's another person I've been following for years and just been a huge fan of his design work and always been a positive voice in the community, supporting other people and through all of the other products that he's launched combined with his work and his interactions. That was a no brainer. That was an instant buy when he put up his design course, I sent him a mm. message immediately. I was like, hey, I want this. Yeah, so I think he does a really, really great job marketing. I think the other company that maybe a lot of people know of is The Future, Christo and The yeah. Future. He gives away almost everything for free, right? I mean, I, there's very little that is paid for in his marketing world, which I find really, really fascinating. And he's talked very openly about how he got to where he's at. But I think there's something to be said, you know, he he embodies the give everything away and mm. it'll kind of come back to you. And I don't think there are a lot of people doing that very well. So I think his his stuff is really good because you can see <laughs> what the value. So you just know that if there's a product they're putting out, that that's going to be even higher value because what they're producing for free is already great value. And uh. they they aren't real pushy or salesy. It's like, hey, here's this thing. You either want it or you don't. We just thought we'd tell you about it. So it's no pressure and doesn't feel like a sell ever. I'm on their email list, so I guess it doesn't feel like a sell ever. <laughs> yep, yeah. you're in their marketing world. You're in the ecosystem. Yeah. That's amazing. Last question for you. When I say everything is marketing, mm -hmm. the title of the podcast, what does that mean to you? Like what, what comes to mind when you hear that phrase? Yeah, I, everything is marketing to me means you should be transparent about who you are and not put on a persona because mm. who you are as a person, who you are as a brand, everything that you're doing is building trust with a potential customer. So whether that's you interacting with them on social media, you asking them to sign up for your newsletter, um, or buying a paid product, a service, 
Like I get it. Everything is marketing. You are building relationships with people, whether you realize it or not. And so how you build those relationships and how you approach them is extremely important when it comes to then asking for something back in return. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Well, Sarah, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to chat with you. Appreciate you sharing everything and being so transparent, showing up every day and putting in the work and trying to provide value to, to everyone around you. And so thanks for coming on the show and sharing and, and appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Corey. This is great. Thanks again to Sarah for coming on the show and joining me. If you have a second, pop on Twitter and thank her for sharing everything today and let her know what you thought as well. Also, make sure to check out Podcast Ops if you're a podcaster as well as Community Finder if you're looking to plug into a creative community. To wrap up, here are a few of my takeaways. There's a very consistent theme of trust and transparency. She actually mentioned several times how she's very thoughtful about trying to build trust and that she only buys from people that she feels like she knows well. Trust is such an underrated factor and is vital to marketing. It's also interesting that she emphasized how she only follows and engages with people, not companies. This is becoming more and more true today in the reality. Personal brands are incredibly important. People want to know who's behind the company. There was also this little nugget of wisdom that she snuck in at the end about how the quality of free content is a good indicator of the quality of a paid product. She mentioned how Chris Dew from the future puts out such high quality free content. So anytime there's a paid offering, she knows that it's going to be really high quality as well. And I love this because you can let the quality of your marketing be the indicator of the quality of your product and service. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swipefiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.